Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's Walkley Media Talk, hosted by our event partner, the State Library of New South Wales. Uh, tonight's event, of course, is also supported by our photography partner, Nikon, and his partner, the Head On Photography Festival. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Warren, and I'm the Federal Secretary of the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, who have been the proud custodians of the Walkley Awards and Walkley Foundation for Excellence in Journalism since 1956. And I'm particularly pleased to welcome you here for what I think is a very special event at a very important time in our history. I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, uh, the elders past and present of the Gadiga people of the Eora Nation. Now we're proud to present this, uh, the latest in our series of public talks in partnership with the State Library. Independently funded, the Walkley Foundation is the proud custodian of a tradition of excellence in Australian journalism and photojournalism. But we're also generating and facilitating important conversations about our industry and about its future. <laughs> Those photos you've just seen are just some of the many incredible entries we received in the photographic categories of the 2013 Walkley Awards. Now, for more than 50 years, these prestigious awards have recognised outstanding reporting, courageous journalism, and above all, excellence in our media. Established as Australia's most coveted media accolades, the Walkleys set a benchmark for excellence to which all journalists aspire, and the awards have grown to recognise quality journalism across all media platforms, including non-fiction books, documentary film, and photojournalism. And of course, tonight, we'll be photo focusing on photojournalism, and in the light of recent redundancies and job losses in photo photography departments across various media organisations in Australia, and indeed around the world, it's a great opportunity to engage with the public and fellow photographers in the community on why news organisations need highly skilled photographers such as those who are here on tonight's panel. And it's also an opportunity to look at the future of photojournalism and the key role it plays in modern news telling. Photojournalism is under assault on several fronts. Uh, every smartphone and tablet enables anyone to, to try to be a breaking news photographer. The digital revolution is having a profound impact. Uh, as Fairfax Chief Campbell Press Gallery photographer Andrew Mears wrote in the Walkley magazine quite recently, a very real crisis is upon us as the entire media industry struggles with audience relevance and plummeting funding models. Photographers are particularly vulnerable as the culture of curating replaces creation. A photograph is now a colourful arrangement of pixels on a screen near you, from conception to copyright infringement with the right click of a mouse. Tumblr accounts, meme distributors, bloggers, and increasingly mainstream media actively pursue a business model where photography comes free as long as they get a click on the way through. The redundancies announced by Fairfax at the City Morning Herald in the Age just three weeks ago will see about 40 photographers on staff reduced to just about 20. In other words, somewhere between 20 and 30 outstanding photographic journalists, many of them Walkley winners, could soon be lost from these two newspapers. Fairfax intends to replace them by outsourcing their work to an international photo agency, Getty Images. 
and it's difficult to comprehend what this loss will mean for Australian photojournalism. Uh, and as the union representing the photographers at Fairfax, we remain in negotiations with the company to see how we can reverse or mitigate this short-sighted decision that can only erode the quality of journalism at the group. Now, to lead our discussion tonight, I'd like to welcome Anne Davies, who's in the middle of the panel. Uh, Anne is a senior investigative journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald and a member of the Walkley Advisory Board. And as a senior reporter and writer, Anne will be able to tell us about how the marriage of words and images come together to produce powerful, provocative and engaging storytelling. Would you please welcome Anne Davies? Thanks, Chris. Um, as a journalist, I've had the opportunity to work with some of the best photographers that there are. Um, I was lucky enough or unlucky enough to go to Arche with Nick Moyer after the tsunami. Um, I've had the privilege of being sent on jobs with some of our famous photographers like Kate Geraghty, Tamara Dean, Brendan Esposito, Walter Peters, to name just a few of them. I'm constantly overwhelmed by their talent. I hate to admit it, but sometimes the photographer's work can be more enduring than our words. I lived in Washington for several years, and one of my favourite excursions was to go to the museum and look at the Pulitzer Prize photos. Now, if I asked my kids what they know about the Vietnam War, they would probably cite the image of that little girl running down the street, naked, with napalm burning her skin. They won't remember anything that they've read or seen other than that enduring image. But photojournalism does more than encapsulate momentous news moments. It brings our words alive. It gives the face to the voices that we quote in our stories. And more often than not nowadays, that might literally be the case because our photojournalists are also doing video. And most of all, Photos make us smile, they make us connect with the words. More often these days, the photo photographers are also the journalists' eyes and ears. I hate to say this, but often we're trapped at our desks, filing for multiple platforms, and we depend on the journalists to tell us what actually is happening out at the scene. And that's not uncommon when we're covering crime or, or um, you know, things that we used to all jump up and go out to. I'm sure tonight we'll spend quite a bit of time on the pressures and opportunities that digital media has brought to the world of photojournalism. It's a time when our photojournalists are fighting for their futures, so thank you for being here to show you support. Tonight's discussion we will also be able to view some of the work, not only of the panel, but some of the past winners of the prestigious Nikon Walkley Press Photography Awards. So keep your eye on the screen, you'll see some fabulous images. Um, now, at this point, most people would ask you to switch off your mobile phones. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ask you to put them on silent and uh, join the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag at Walkleys. So now to our special guests. Nick Moyer has been a staff photographer covering daily news at the Sydney Morning Herald since 1993. He specialises in bushfires, severe weather and other natural disasters and has covered events such as the Threadbow landslide, the, the 2001 Black Christmas fires, the 2002-03 Sydney and Canberra fires, 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, uh, the US tornado seasons from 2006 and 2010. We can always tell when they're on because Nick's away. 
And um, <laughs> and the 2009 Black Saturday fires. In 2000, he founded Oculi Photographic Collective. Nick has won two Nikon Walkley Awards and is currently a member of the Walkley Advisory Board with me. Um, David Dare Parker, who's on my left, your right, um, is a freelance photographer. He's a Walkley Award-winning photojournalist and he's, um, photo has photographed many national and international magazines throughout Asia, the Middle East, Europe and Australasia. His publications, of, his photos have appeared in magazines such as Le Monde, Stern, L'Espresse, Focus, Australian Geographic, Bulletin, The New York Times and Time magazine. David is one of the co-founders and directors of the Reportage Festival, a former Walkley advisory board member and is currently ambassador for Nikon Australia. Craig Greenhill is an Australian photojournalist and multimedia specialist with 18 years professional experience. He's been employed with News Limited since 2000. Craig has numerous professional, professional awards, including the Walkley Award for his coverage of the inaugural Indian Premier League in 2008. In 2006, Craig received the Walkley Award for News Photograph with his dramatic images of the violence on a suburban train during the 2005 Cronulla riots. And then our final panellist is Andrew Quilty, whose career began in 2001 when he set off on Highway 1 around Australia after his uncle gave him a Nikon F3. His first big editorial break came when his photos of the Cronulla riots in December 2005 were published by Time magazine. Andrew received the inaugural Walkley Young Australian Photojournalist of the Year Award. His photographs have been published in the New York Times, the International Herald Tribune, the Wall Street Journal, Time magazine, Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, The Times, Le Monde, the Guardian Weekend Magazine, Bloomberg, Business Week, the AFR Magazine, the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, and more. <laughs> so um, please welcome our panel. And um, let me first start with the topic du jour. Um, Nick, can you just fill us in on what's happening at Fairfax and what you think it's going to mean for photography news photography, at least at one of the newspaper groups. Okay, so a few weeks ago we got a call in uh, that we're having a meeting at Fairfax um, and we were a little bit nervous. We knew something was sort of, we knew something big was coming for a, a few years. Like the Herald, well Fair, Fairfax itself has kind of been left alone uh, along with the news limited as well in, in Australia. Um, the rest of the world got a lot of very small staff Photographers at, at you know, most of the world's big uh, newspapers. Um, and anyway, uh, we uh, went into this meeting and it was announced that they uh, intended to um, get rid of uh, three quarters of us. And uh, we weren't expecting that. That was a, a huge shock. That's a, a, a really big, um, big cut. And uh, they said that they intended to uh, replace us with uh, Getty. And um, well, uh, I'm not going to. You know, Getty got a lot of uh, very good photographers, so, yeah. uh, but we have been um, pretty well competing pretty hard with them, especially in the sport arena, uh, for a number of years. 
Anyway, so um, I'm the representative on the um, House Committee for the photographers, so it's, it's my job to yell and shout and be vaguely um, useful as well. Um, and so we kind of had to very quickly come up with an idea of, okay, well, photographers tend to be pretty pragmatic, you know, they, 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 they it's all about um, uh, adapting to your environment. I mean, we adapted quicker than anybody with, um, with technology. And so we very quickly looked at each other um, and yelled at our editor and stuff like that. But um, looked at each other and said, oh, well, we've got to try and make us be the outsourced people. And that's what we've been fighting to do. It's kind of like, it's insane. It's like you're slitting your own throat and jumping off the cliff to be polite. But anyway, that's uh, the thing was um, uh, we wanted uh, the people to who were going to be outsourced back in there to be, you know, uh, to be the same photographers, even if it might be at a much lower wage. Um, we're very proud of um, the things that have been done by the photographers that have come 50, 60 years before us, and um, and uh, we hold those traditions, you know, e even now. And um, I don't know, it, it's it's uh, gut wrenching. You know, each night I put on a couple of songs on the way um, home and uh, usually end up in tears. Um, a lot of the other photographers have been in tears. That's not, they're going to be walking out with, with you know, we've got redundancies. It, it, it's, you don't need to feel sorry for the photographers in that respect, but it, it's, the Herald has been a, a crucible. Um, and it's the same over, over with our friends at, at News, you know. When you've got that many photographers who are competing so hard to be not only the best in themselves, but better than their mates. And, and it's a it's a it's a crucible that can create great things. In the you know when I first arrived um, in the nineties, um, just the originality and, and astounding things that were being done by these photographers that they were uh, just the the Herald itself was picking up more award uh, more press awards than than huge organisations. It was just it was an amazing place to be, and the people who were there are still you know part of them. There's been a lot of redundancy, so a lot of them are still there, but to me, it's, I guess it's the end of an era in some ways. Look, the skills of those photographers are still going to be out there, and they still want to go out and tell stories. I mean, um, back in 2000, I wasn't the founder of Ocula, I was a co-founder, okay. and uh, I'm kind of a bit uh, lazy member, right? <laughs> I guess, <laughs> but anyway, um, Andrew Quilty is also a, a member. It, it was formed because we were frustrated with, with the way newspapers ran stories and photo essays. Uh, we, we fought really hard to get reportage-style photography and not um, set up stuff in the papers. And, and we won. We won that absolutely hands down. Uh, and it was through uh, work through Oculi and also people like Dean Sewell and Tim Clayton and um, you know, Michael and Dolly, all these fantastic... Um, and David, you know, just great reportage and being relevant and kind of... Uh, Wondering a little bit, but uh, yeah, I guess okay. um, photographers uh, are fighting the best way we can, but uh, we don't um, control the budgets. Mm. Okay, well, perhaps <coughs> I could ask Craig to tell us what's happening at News. I mean, News is also under cross pressures. How's it adapted? Um, I mean, what's happening at Fairfax uh, is is uh, is in our minds all the time. Not we need our guys, our, our colleagues at Fairfax to. Be competitive for for us to strive and be hard. But, um, we've had cutbacks. Our company doesn't tend to announce cutbacks, 
as publicly as Fairfax does. And um, about 18 months ago to 20 months ago, we had cutbacks. But uh, the way the company went around it, instead of just um, going for voluntary redundancy, see who at the end of their career, see if they can move on, reduce numbers. Um, there was a restructuring where they took that all the assets of photographers around New South Wales, for example, across, the whole model was used across Australia, but we have all our suburban papers, the same as Fairfax has, and you've got all your local photographers um, that do a great job for, for local readers, and then you've got metro photographers, and we're all pulled in to, uh, to zones, so worked out having central zones where mostly you do the metro, you've got north, south, east, west zones that cover all the local papers. But now, um, the picture editor, um, or, or the picture editors are from all the papers are all together on one super desk, and they're able to take all the resources at their hand and use them. An example the other day on a great news article, um, breaking news, Roger Rogerson, um, when he came back from Queensland uh, and was arrested, I mean, that was just that's that stuff we love as news photographers getting out there and and getting into a story that the whole public just can't get enough of, and having the different zones in our organisation. Which, while we did lose photographers um, from in redundancies, um, it's the model's a lot more efficient and maybe more sustainable at the moment. Mm -hmm. But for Roger Rogerson case, uh, we heard through the lawyer that. Um, he was going to give himself into one of the police stations in the city. He wanted to control everything, and so the picture desk was able to put assets everywhere. You know, we we had um, every police station in the city covered: Sydney Police Centre, the Rocks, um, Central, uh, Darling Harbour, um, uh, Kings Cross. Um, Surely, was it pubs? Was it Cogra? <laughs> yeah, we had mascot Cogra. And then uh, when the lawyer came to the house, we realised that, okay, he's, he's, he is at home. Nobody saw him go in. Mm. And uh, so we had people move to Bankstown. We had local guys that were doing local news in Bankstown. They were able to go and cover Bankstown Police Station. Uh, just using those assets. And, and that's where a big team of news photographers can, can come in to cover a story and, and really own it. And I think that's very important for news organisations to... To, to really own their news. And, and then News Limited is really, or News Corp Australia as we're known now, really strive to, to just dominate in the news um, arena. So. Yeah, I know from my perspective that um, one of the things we're really worried about losing is our ability to go and paparazzi people who are named in investigative pieces um, because that takes a lot of resources as you as you would well know. Um, I remember when Kate was on the McGurk, Kate McClymont was on the McGurk story, we did this amazing stakeout of four or five locations and got great shots. I think she had some tip-offs about when the arrest would occur. But that will be extremely hard to do with um, uh, freelance photographers and also without our own staff. But that's, um, I guess, the new world. Now, I might just ask David, who is working as a freelance photographer, um, what, it's, what it's like. Can you make a decent living in Australia as a freelancer? And what's the difference between the commissioning process? I mean, at the moment, 
our newsroom. It's a very collaborative process between the journalist mm -hmm. and the and the um, and the photographer. Uh, so we come up with ideas. Um, are you more involved in pitching your ideas to newspapers or magazines, and and are you the person driving the stories? Look, traditionally, um, I guess I'm from a much earlier generation. Um, you know, I grew up emulating my heroes, which were the Don McCollins and the W.G. Smiths, and you know, tradition born of the likes of Magnum Photos and you know, the great photo essays and Life magazine, and. You know, so we treated it as a way of life from the very beginning. We kind of expected, we knew it would be difficult, but at least you, there was incentives because there was an opportunity that you could get your work published if it was good enough. Um, now I got to a stage where, you know, I was getting three, four major assignments a year from Time mm -hmm. Australia and Time Asia and the Bulletin. I was a regular contributor to the Bulletin and, you know, Katie Magazine, sort of the Australian Financial Review on the odd picture on a good weekend. And so it was, there was still enough incentive there to keep on pushing your craft and, you know, it was a resource for us. And I guess one of the points we should make here is that, you know, the Fairfax is a resource for its photographers. If you don't have a resource, you can't grow. Um, you can't develop your craft. If you're not shooting continuously, then that craft starts to disappear. And I think, you know, in, in my world, you know, the likes of, you know, there is no time Australia, there's no time Asia. Um, the bulletin's well gone, done and dusted. Um, so the vehicles that I relied upon that published my work or at least give me a guarantee if I was going off to do a story that they might have been interested in have gone. So, you know, to answer the question, is it possible to make a living as a freelance photographer? Yes. Is it possible to make a living as a photojournalist? Um, that's a completely different story. It's very difficult. Yeah. I've always supplemented my income by working in the film industry, so I do film stills, and that was born of also my love of Magnum. I mean, I think... Kat was having an affair with Ingrid Bergman, I think they got him <laughs> introduced to the film industry. He came back and said, this is another way we can make an income. Chaps, let's do that. So they were also doing what I've done for the last 25 years, and that's supplement their income by working in the film industry. So I've got that to fall back on, but, you know, my true passion is photojournalism, and, you know, literally it's been almost three years since I've had a proper assignment or a, a guarantee to go off to the sort of stories I'd like to do. That doesn't mean I've given up on becoming a photojournalist. I, I'm not that fond of the film industry. It's just a means to an end, and I love photojournalism. I love the tradition. I love the way of life. I've loved the life it's given me. In fact, I think I've had three lives to most people's one, so I've got no complaints, but it's never been an easy way to make a living. Okay, well, one of the things we're all confronting is digital disruption and what it means. We've all found um, our lives turned upside down because we're always connected. We're able to file at any time of the day or night. Um, so, Andrew, um, I'll turn to you. You've actually embraced some of this new technology and new ways of uh, getting your photos out there. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did with Time magazine and its Instagram coverage of the, I think it was the New Jersey hurricane? Yeah. Um, as Nick on the end of the panel will tell you, I, I joined up to Instagram very, very, very reluctantly. <laughs> I'm probably, um, I probably grew up in the wrong generation. I, I think I very much aspire to the sort of photography that, that David described. And so I was, I was, you know, I've been reluctant to let go of film and um, embrace digital and then, and the, the same goes for, you know, things like Instagram. Of course, as a freelancer, it's, it's pretty hard to say no to any assignment. And the one that brought me to Instagram was one that um, was particularly difficult to say no to which involved being in, um, in New Jersey when Hurricane Sandy um, crossed the coast. Sorry, I should back a little bit. Mm -hmm. 
the reason I was there was not because I was sent there, as um, as used to be the case for David, I, I presume. If, you know, if there was a, a story that you had to cover in PNG or in yeah. Southeast Asia, they would send you from... Oh, they know you're on your way. Yeah, yeah, right. I, um, seeing the way things were going here in Australia, um, decided to go to, to the States and try and infiltrate the, the industry there. I you know, could see it, was, it still had um, a bit more kick in it than here. But it still took for me to make that step myself. And then again... I had to make that decision when, you know, on a small scale, when I saw this, you know, news event on the horizon, excuse the pun, I, I took myself to New Jersey where I thought well, there's, there's not going to be any photographers there compared to New York where, there's, where everyone's a photographer. And um, then I went about, um, t- you know, telling people that I, that I was there, my contacts back home, um, as well as in the few that I'd met in New York in the short time that I'd been there. And... Um, Time ended up commissioning me to, to cover that um, for a few days. And part of that assignment was to cover it via Instagram, which I never used mm-hmm. to that point. So I signed up and, um, you know, it was a real sort of baptism of fire and I didn't know what I was doing. I, you know, I was using these horrible filters and, like, I look at the pictures now, they're pretty awful. But it was a bit like a, an 18-year-old going to the pub for the first time and playing the pokies and having a big win. Because, you know, the first picture I posted on Instagram, I got, you know, 5,000 likes or something. So I was hooked. And, you know, I don't, no one can deny they help that. you. Yeah. <laughs> no one can deny that, you know, that feels good to be recognised yeah. like that. Because you don't, you don't get that. You don't, you don't get that feedback generally. It actually took me a while to embrace it personally after that. Um, I sort of let it go for a while. But um, since having then continued as a freelancer and seeing the, the benefits that... Um, you know, come of it, I've yeah, I've, I've kind of embraced it. It's become a not an integral part of my work, but a like a, a supplement and it's it something that's yeah. Craig, I heard you talk the other day about how your life had changed as a photographer. You know that you used to just be able to sort of focus on the end of the day. Do you want to just tell the audience a little bit about what's expected of you now in terms of deadlines? And I might ask Nick the same thing. Sure. A lot's changed. Uh, I've been uh, news for 14 years, and if I can look before I was there, there used to be times where photographers would hang out in the pub and they'd have a bat phone on the wall where they'd get called up and, uh, who, who wants a job? Okay, you've got to go down to the police centre and photograph someone. For me, it was, we still were on film when I started, just were, you know, busy processing our film and scanning all together, and the same sort of thing. You'd get the call. You get your job sheet. Uh, you go and talk to picture and have a conversation about what's mm. what needs to be achieved. You know, get a journal always with a journal. You go out to the story and you tell the story together. Today, it's it's a lot different. With our restructuring, everything's time critical. So we're constantly check, checking our phones because we're on email. All our communications. We're usually out on the field already. We we don't sit in the office anymore. There's, there's not too many, too many assignments where you're actually with a journalist. You're out. You're the eyes for the publication. You're given a, a brief of what you should be doing, but you can extend on that and take it. You've got, I guess you've got the capability of leading the publication. You're given a pretty much open slabber of what, what to bring back. And everything's time critical for the internet, obviously. With new competition in the market, the, the Daily Mail, for example, they're only less than a year old, I think, in Australia, and they're just ramping up our competition. We have to get faster and 
and more efficient. Before it was competing with just Fairfax mostly, and that was more about tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And now it's everything we do. It's about now. Mm-hmm. You know what what has to be published today. Okay. We do hold stuff for tomorrow, and as we use Instagram, but. Sometimes we can't put it on the Instagram straight away because we have to hold it for tomorrow's paper. Because okay, Nick, I hardly ever see you in the office anymore. I hate those. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that it seems to me is actually there seems to be more demand for photos, not less. I mean, if I look at our our website or users' website, there's like instead of one image, there's three or four from every story. I guess yeah, yeah. Well, there there is. I mean, it's kind of our own fault in some ways. We started wanting to put up photo essays. And then the, what they demand for them was so high that often you'd be from a, from a story that you'd only want to put two or three pictures on. They want a gallery, mm-hmm. and so they want a gallery find. And and it's like, well, that actually lowers your standard. That your editing is really important. You can water down the quality mm-hmm. the quality product. So I mean, yeah, the de- demand is, is out there. Majority. I mean, I love that everybody's got a camera. To me, the, the everybody being uh, becoming more and more photo literate is, is great, and it drives us to be better photographers. I love the fact that I can, um, you know, I, I never used to work on my pictures much anyway. I used to set them in pretty plain. So being able to give it out, my pictures out to everybody immediately is, is I love it. I, I, it's just a real driver for me, especially with storms and bushfires. I can say, huh, it's up in Craig, I've got this picture, you can't get it because it's already happened. Um, <laughs> but then Craig, you know, he, I reckon Craig got the best frame the other day on Roger, and he was the last on the scene bastard. But... Um, <laughs> That, that happened. Yeah, look, I guess a, a real big one for me was in 2001, trying to get pictures out from the fires in Western Sydney, and the cameras were so bad that we actually had to go back to using film because they just couldn't handle the actual changes in colour temperature and intensity and stuff. And, and even then, just sending back on these crappy laptops and mobile phones, and it was just it was a nightmare. Even back then, we were saying, I want a little mobile device that I can just get my picture out immediately. And that we, we managed to get that. Photographers always embrace technology, except for old bastards like this one. And no, I was one of the first. All right, well, let me... No, no, stop, don't. Still going over to the start. No, I'm going to cut you off there. I'd like to ask David, why shouldn't we, I mean, why can't, newspapers and magazines now just rely on the citizenry out there. They've all got mobile phones in their pockets. There's people at demonstrations. What is it that the photojournalist brings that an ordinary citizen can't bring to a story? Well, look, we understand ethics. We have we understand that the information we deliver with our images have to be verified, that we know exactly what happened in front of us did happen. So, you know, and there's an awful lot of talk in the other world where they say, you know, even photojournalism is not about the truth, but it is about the truth. You know, we're not going there to fool anybody. We're going there to present exactly what it is we're experiencing in front of us with our craft and our knowledge as to what's going on. We know who the players are when we're there. So that what you see, when you see you, an image from one of us is an honest image. You know, we self-police, you know, we, we kind of aware when people manipulate something too far and we jump all over it. So what you're getting is verified, crafted imagery that a citizen journalist, and I even hate the term, because there's no such thing, you know, they're sort of unverified witnesses. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with sourcing that. I mean, it's an important part of our imagery. You know, it's an important part of what's happening there, but we still have to verify the facts when something gets put in front of us. And I'm sure that's the point of contention for picture editors everywhere if there are any left. There's um, plenty of, there's more picture editors than photographers now. Not good ones, though. There's not a hell of a lot of good picture editors out there still. I mean, some of the, especially in the magazine world, you know, a lot of them have been made redundant as well. I mean, There's a couple of really good ones here, aren't there, Craig? Mm-hmm. 
but you know what I'm saying. The magazine world. Picture is awesome. Yeah. And you, you need pictures. You need it's a, you know, it's a symbolic relationship, and and it's that going back and forth that they want to know that that image that that is correct, that it's truthful. So fundamentally, you know, if you're putting something on it, on the, you know, like the Time magazine, there's an awful, there's a, a complicated process before that's put in front of the general public, and that's that's starting to that message has been diluted a lot. You know, you can't trust everything you see now because of the fact there's so much white noise out there. A lot of information is coming off the web, and it's instant. And, I remember when we were covering the red shirts that last day and people were tweeting about us that weren't even there. They are telling us what was happening to us and they weren't there. And people were looking at that as fact that was being reported on in, in some of the major news outlets. So, Andrew, you've worked in the US and Australia. Is it going to be possible for Australia to operate on a basis where we've got all our news photographers outsourced? I mean, it's quite a small market and, a, dare I say it, quite tribal where you work for one or the other. Do you think it's possible for news photojournalists to make a living in Australia? I don't know if I'm the best person to answer no, that question because okay. I've kind of thrown in the towel. That's why I'm now, I've gone to Afghanistan. And mind you, that's not only because it's just a professional decision, it's, a, it's because I, that's what interests me at the moment. And I find, you know, for me as a photographer, that's where I'd prefer to be in a place like that. And so you say you've gone there for the assignments, for picking up gigs? And... Yeah. Yeah, so yeah I mean, right I place. no one's... Yeah. paying for my flights to get there and it's it's um, you know scratching for assignments and I'm putting myself in places that I'd have to be to be there if an assignment occurs but it's um I mean it's very fraught with you know all sorts of risks um security is is the the main one I mean I, I can't afford to pay insurance for myself it's impossible completely unaffordable for an individual so I'll, I'll pay for insurance on a day-by-day or week-by-week basis if I have a, an assignment which requires it. And most people won't hire you unless you have it. So it's, it's, it's the, the thing is that the, the world's news is relying on people who do it for the love of it and are actually willing to suffer serious injury uh, for your news. You know, and it's it's people like this that tell the news. And what was it, Camille Lepage? What yeah. was her name? You know, the young girl killed in Camille South Lepage, yeah. Going out into the most horrific situations, no money at all. And but she had a good ethical sense. I mean, yeah. she you know she knew what she was getting into. I mean, I I've never met a person where we'd communicated by email. She used to ask questions, and she was certainly a good friend of my partner's, who's also a photographer. But you know, she was interested. She was young. She was taking risks, but in her mind, calculated risks and pay the ultimate price. You know, she was filmed in an ambush in the Central African Republic. And then there's another Italian journalist, I think, was the photographer killed in Ukraine a couple of days ago. It's, I mean, that, that has always happened. I guess it's the, the, the fact that it's, um, it, it's often now people who just, they're, they're making a loss to go and, to go and do this. And it's, it is important stuff. I mean, places like Afghanistan and, and Central Africa and stuff like that are, are not, the, the big agencies aren't, don't tend to be there. It's little, little people. And yet they are, this is news events that, you know, they're big news on all the, everywhere, but it's only these little guys telling it. But for a loss. And they believe in what they're doing. You know, there is a tradition of it, and there's always been a tradition of risk. I mean, you can't take a photograph that's been front and centre. You know, you can't shoot a great news picture by staying in the hotel room and waiting for somebody to come back and tell you what happened. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, I mean, uh, we've just been... Um... Or should I say, scribblers? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. <so laughs> Thanks for coming, Anne. Um, so, Andrew, I mean, obviously you have to deal with quite a bit of risk. Are you travelling on your own? Can you just give us an idea of your working conditions in Afghanistan, for instance? Um, that's another difficulty. And I'm going to be careful because photographers have a great propensity to complain and we're always... <laughs> and, I mean, 
but I absolutely love my job. And so I'm not complaining, but yeah, it has its difficulties. And being in Afghanistan, there are other difficulties and expenses that you don't encounter in places like Australia. You know, I need a, a, um, a fixer or a translator or both to work on any story that requires it. People don't speak English or where I need um, specific introductions or um, to be allowed into certain places and, you know, insurance and that sort of thing. So those sort of expenses um, stack up. And a lot of people, it's surprising, you know, don't, don't want to pay for that. So um, you do find yourself you know, doing what you do for a loss at, at some times. Um, it makes us more of charity then. It's also very hard to, because I'm kind of competing with the, the wire agencies there, so so I, I can't um, cover sort of breaking news events because mm. no one's going to take my pictures when they're getting them from, for free from the AP or the Reuters or, or Getty, even if my, my pictures are better, which... They can be, and sometimes they're not. But um, because I'll, you know, I'll always do the the ring around if I have a picture that I think is of interest to Australia, I'll call the Herald and you know be told, oh yeah, we can run it, but we can't pay you. You'll actually get people have you know email me saying, oh, I saw your picture on Instagram of the suicide bomb aftermath. Can we? um, We'd love to run the picture. I said, yeah, yeah, great. Thanks for getting in touch. Um, What's your budget? Oh yeah, no, we don't have budget. Sorry. So it's pretty (laughs) insulting, but. it's, um, you know, I, I, I like being over there and I'm sort of happy. Before I throw it over into the audience, I just want you each to tell me about an exhilarating moment as a photojournalist. Um, and I'll start with Andrew and move along that way. Well, the most recent one I had was um, I was asked to cover the landslide in um, northern Afghanistan a couple of weeks ago, which I don't know if anyone heard about here because there was a brawl between two blokes in Bondi that seem to be taking <laughs> <laughs> but, um, between 500 and 2,000 people got buried by a, um, a landslide that happened in um, a lot of rain in very poor northern provinces and so as soon as it happened I sort of started making inquiries how to get to the place because Time Magazine offered to put me on um, so I said you know I just said I'll get there and I ended up at the uh, military airport in Kabul the next morning, trying to get on a flight that the um, the various Afghan ministers had, had all made uh, guest lists for. So the, the plane was five times overbooked, an old um, US C-130 military aircraft. And so there were about 300 people trying to get on this plane that um, held about 80, and um, all trying to get on that, you know, the sort of tip tray at the end, at the back. And it was just a, a scrum, like there were US Special Forces guys with waving their guns around trying to control the mess, and eventually, you know, they, they just gave up and started lifting the tray. I, you know, again, this is because I was a freelancer. Um, if I was there on staff, I wouldn't have needed to do this because I would have been getting paid for the day's work anyway. But if I didn't get up there, that was the end of the story was over. There wouldn't have been any point in me trying to get up there the following day. So I just um, put one foot up on the tray and my fixer pushed me, like, grabbed me by the ass and just pushed me up into it. And um, I crawled underneath the, crawled through the legs of the, the guy who was, you know, Pulling the shots, got into the got into the plane, um, put a scarf over my head and pretended I was asleep until we took off. And yes, yeah, so. <laughs> that's a good story. Yeah. And then waited for three days to get home for the a flight with the same people. All right, yeah. Craig. I've been in some interesting scenarios, but probably taking back to photojournalism. Often, my photography is probably news photography and. Photojournalism, I think it's more being able to just to not shoot for a product and just be free to, to use your eyes and, and your skills and your composition and come up with beautiful images. And I was sent to uh, India to go and cover the IPL, the cricket, 2020 cricket match, 
uh, so like my first uh, cricket event usually I spend, send the sports photographers and, and I was like yeah cool let's go I got over there I'm over in Bangalore and I, I get a call from uh, my manager saying Craig don't take any photographs there's a boycott on uh, on the event from international media and we're part of it when you're not to go to the event it's, that's it on big shot having a go and he sent me all the way from Australia to the, and, and I can't take a photograph so I went to the pool and I, uh, you know, got a few cocktails. Come here, waiter. <laughs> I caught it. It's calm. Just, oh, how do I get around this? And I said, ah, oh, bugger it. I'm going. I went to the game and um, I, I didn't shoot any action. And I, I, I went to the, almost to the rule of what my boss said. And I just got in the crowd and, and uh, discovered a whole new... I'm used to shooting fans in Australia and how they get excited. But the Indians are just so intense. And, uh, you know, they've got different levels of society you you got these cages, big cages with barbed wire where the general population go, and then you've got the, the higher class of society, the, the, the movie stars. And that, was, that was my photojournalism, and that's why I got a Walkley out of it, because you were able to I was there that year. not shoot... Where? I was on the board. You know, we had a, had a oh, poker face when we went out to dinner that night. And all that that's somewhere. right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you right. that money, didn't I? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, David, same question. Great. Exhilarating moment. Exhilarating. Probably, or scary. Yeah, probably scary, <laughs> exhilarating. I don't know, I've had a lot of times. And I, you know, I was there when the students from the People's Consultative Assembly, when you know, it was announced that Sahato had resigned, and I was there in 99 when it was announced that um, they'd voted for independence in East Timor. And, you know, that I think the day after I had a loaded gun thrown through the back end of my car and I got chased by <laughs> some guy throwing a machete through a glass door I'd just run through. And mm-hmm. well, I think... Uh, Look, I think it's part of head-on. There's a thing called Genesis, and there's a family I photographed, which I think the photograph slashed up here. Um, some people I photographed, and I think in '99 it was so dangerous that you really weren't keeping notes because I they used to have these death lists in Delhi that used to pop up on walls, and and often it's not the people who've been talking to journalists or been seen around in a company of journalists, their names would end up on these lists. So we just didn't record names, and I was always a stickler for getting as much information for my captions so that you know people had names to faces and. And it was about a decade after, with the help of my partner, who was a UN photographer in his team, or a friend of a, a called Dino Soros, another UN photographer, we tracked down uh, some people that I'd photographed before. I, every time I went back to his team, I'd cover the elections and, and the conflict in 2006. I always had this little set of images that I'd hand around wherever I went, just trying to put names to even remains of some pictures I'd taken from that period. And you know, we were able to track down this family of what was, you know, I guess you could consider some kind of iconic image of the event. Um, so I guess that was probably the most exhilarating. It was certainly the most moving for me when I got to meet them face to face after a decade. And, wow! Um, and Nick, great moments. Uh, I'll do two because they're <laughs> okay, kind of different right. now. Well, uh, the exhilaration sort of one was um, actually just forecasting a dust storm well and <laughs> driving uh, one thousand two hundred kilometres and getting there just in time to do it. And that, and that was just like yes. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody ran it. <laughs> I just didn't care, didn't care. It's like I, I, I said the day before to somebody, I said, there's going to be a gust storm out here and I'm going to be there when it happens. And there was. And, and it was just like, whoa, I so nailed that dust storm. <laughs> I mean, it, it, that, that's exhilarating, you know. It's just, it's nerd exhilaration, but it's, to me, that sort of stuff is actually really important because it's one of the only things I've got over everybody else is actually being able to be in the right place at the right time for those sorts of things. It's like having sort of contacts and stuff like that. It's it's being uh, having, having information to, to yourself. But most exhilarating is in sort of danger and, and dumb. 
dumb thing I've done was um, <laughs> uh, at Canberra bushfires, I had this brilliant idea that I went, oh, well, I'll come around behind the fire because it, it, it'll be less dangerous there. I was you know, literally banging down there at 100 million miles an hour and um, coming around the back and um, came into this unburned area um, in this full drive and it got smoke here and smoke here and these fires are going past and they're going, and I went, yeah, yeah, see you, mate, cool. And then it just got thicker and thicker until it was the big, you know, thick black smoke and I kind of knew, well, that's not very good. It got so bad that I actually had to open up the car door and watch the white lines to actually see where I'm driving. And it was getting pitch black and the big glow came up on the, my right and I started going, ooh, I'm feeling a little bit uh, choky and a little bit uh, worried here. Um, fortunately, in my head, I kind of knew where I was in mm. theory. And so I just went, had a kind of a freak out moment. I mean, the, the logical thing would be just to turn around and drive mm. back, but I didn't. I just drove through the field and drove off into the distance and unfortunately I got away with it. But um, that, not knowing where you are in a fire is frightening and, and uh, it's more, you, you don't know where it's coming from and you can't see the light. You can literally see about two metres around you and uh, that's a freak out, that is, and, and it gets... Where are the citizen journalists there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I should well, say... Well, having said that, look, the um, World Press at the moment yeah. have got those amazing shots shot down in in Tasmania, and um, yeah. they they were they were amazing. Yeah. Though I, I was just going, you know, it would have been so much better if I was there. <laughs> but, um, but still, um, that that's the thing. I, I I I don't have a problem with people having fun. So it makes me just go, oh, I just want to. Makes me drive me harder. I guess what we're saying is there's still a place for us. You know, that's the yeah. point. It's rare that someone can execute yeah. consistently. Yeah. Yeah. The, given that situation, I mean, you know, that was the that wasn't actually it. taken on that day. That was the called the Tasmanian fire filter. All right. At this point, I'll throw it open to questions. Does anyone in the audience have something <coughs> they'd like to ask our panelists? A question is: Are there pictures that you've taken that have not been received? on political grounds, such as in the 1418 war, there was a photographer in the front line and he shot, uh, took a picture of somebody being shot in the head. That was published in the Times and it's debated in the House of Commons for three days whether that picture should be made public or not. Have you ever been in any of those kinds of things? Sometimes it's not so much... Um, Dave and I were both in Arche uh, for the tsunami, and there was a lot of death there. Uh, it was just thousands of bodies. Um, and to me, it, it was kind of like how much death you actually needed to show. Um, it, it becomes almost... I don't want it to become like a death pornography or something. And it's you really, really have to think, okay, well, what is the story here? These people are dead. I need to show those images. But the people that are actually important are those who are suffering. So not politically. Um, that comes later on, you know, do they publish our pictures or not? I'm sure there's pictures that I've taken. Uh, I took this awesome one of um, Morris Yemmer 
and he had a little Hitler moustache, and they didn't run it. You know, I laughed for hours, but they didn't run it. But, um, I mean, there's always there's always stuff like that. I mean, um, each newspaper has their own sort of political bent at times, and um, that sort of happened. But as far as really moralistic sort of stuff, a lot of the decisions are actually made by the photographers themselves, and it's something that often comes through experience and really just thinking really hard about the people that you're photographing. And that was a big one for me. It kind of, not messed my head up, but just made me go, uh, almost like, as a doctor, we should do no harm, um, and that sort of feeling. It's like, but I'm here to try and make things better, not feed off these people. And that's often a perception is that we feed off them, and it's like, well, how do I get around that? I should butt in here. I was news editor of the Herald for a year and sat through our news conferences every day. And, look, images of dead children were always a really big problem for us, um, particularly if we were thinking of them for the front page. And I would say that we very rarely run dead bodies on the front page. We would take a different view about running those images in the world section. And it's just a simple thing that, you know, we don't want kids picking up the paper. But there, um, the other two no-go zones, um, interestingly, were um, images that made fun of politicians unfairly. Like sometimes, you know, like, I mean, the Hitler moustache for Morrissey is an example, but sometimes you'll get a really <laughs> dorky image of a politician. And sometimes. <laughs> I just can't and, think of any. And there'll be a debate, and we've got 10 people sitting in the room with the images up on the screen, you know, and people go, yeah, that fits the story, or no, it doesn't. But they have to, you know, I think we try and treat them with a little bit of respect, and unless they've done something really stupid, we won't run the stupid image. The other thing we had a terrible debate about in the newsroom um, was, it was a that really hot day and um, the big day out was on and I actually picked the front page image which had a girl in a wet t-shirt and she was standing under the sprinklers and it caused an absolute furor among the women journalists about whether it was gratuitous. Um, she was wearing a bikini top underneath but it was, it sort of was borderline you know, soft porn I suppose. It, the image sort of, it harked to that Anyway, we changed it for the second edition after a very, very big, vigorous debate. So, um, you know, they're the sort of decisions we make every day, um, and it's usually a group of ten arguing about it. Just going to ask, in the, in the TV show The Wire, there's a photographer who's pinged by desert because every time there's a fire or a tragedy, there's always a children's doll in the foreground. <laughs> the editor says, I'm sick of this guy. Every time he brings in a photo of a fire, there's always a kid's toy in the foreground. Has anybody worked with a photographer who had a, cli- a pattern of cliches always <laughs> playing that sort of trick? Uh, there were stories of a guy hauling around a stuffed kangaroo in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Dean still had this little art project where he was hauling around a dead kangaroo, a real dead kangaroo, but that wasn't for news. And that's just kind of that explains what a lot. Dean still does. Um, was it Ouija that used to do some stuff like that? You know, a bit of stuff like this. There's all sorts of rumours, but most yeah. of them, yeah. Oh, no, we don't carry, we don't carry, I don't carry that stuff toy in my bag. <laughs> oh, there was, there was that guy who was done, was he a Reuters guy, done in the Bosnian floods a few years ago? 
he there was this perfect image yeah. of this Christmas present um, in the water, and it was like there was no watermark or anything. It was just perfect, like the rain, Dropped in and it was kind of like. That's just a little bit suspicious. <laughs> we do keep an eye out for stuff like that, you know. It's, it's, it's a hard thing to survive nowadays. I mean, everyone's watching you, so, you know, ethics, we are held to account. Yeah. You can't start messing with the tree. That might come from maybe the old placing of the flowers, which uh, has happened in the past, at a, at a, at a, some, where someone's died, you know, flowers have been placed. It's uh, it's not, uh, not, not something that if us photographers would want to do or do. I think those times have passed. You know, that that yeah. might have been seventies or, or something like that. Or but before that, it was not, not, not I. <laughs> now there's one at the back. The, the fact that there are pure, claim to be pure photographers out there photographing conflict, for example, uh, and getting the truth out there, is this going to play into the hands of the major powers who don't want the truth to come out? I don't know if there's fewer photographers out there. There's certainly a lot of photographers out there. Um, I just don't think the world's that organised, really. That uh, The thing is that photographers tend to be leftist pains in the ass, and we'll do everything we can to um, disrupt everybody else's plans. <laughs> <laughs> Look, there are, there are a lot of photographers out there, and they're taking risks, and they have no backup plan or any exit strategies because there's no one looking after them. Um, so there's no shortage of photographers in the field. I mean, people talk about the fact that places in Africa, like Central African Republic, are underreported. And, but I know for a fact there are some really good, dedicated shooters out there trying to get the work out and doing it quite successfully, but very little um, financial reward. Yeah, you see them pop up once every few years yeah. when some republic collapses, and suddenly they're there again. And there's been photographers coming in, and I've seen photographers come and go. Like they, they used to be a photojournalist, so it's very hard to sustain it as a profession. But you know, there's no shortage of photographers. There are schools out there still. Showing him out in the states, and you know, the first place they do is head to a war zone. They save up and they go there and they take risks and they hang out with more experienced photographers and try to pick that up. But I think the problem is, it's like you know, it's it's that loss of craft. Like I think it, I think it was Gary Knight on, on this year's jury. He said there was so much rejected because the quality just wasn't there. There's was no depth of the story because the resource wasn't put in to sustain them in the field, so they could keep going and build on the craft and develop their photo story. So yeah, there's there's a lot of this. I go to the conflict is photographed explosions and dead bodies. It's not yeah the craft way. That extra depth. The, the photojournalism craft. What is the story? Why is this happening? And exploring it like it's photojournalism. Like you've got to go and explore the story, not just photographing bang bang and whatever. It's 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 discover deep deeply, and that takes time and dedication, and um, not just jumping around. Why services are, are different. I mean, it's a different sort of kettle fish again. You know? But one of the things that does happen now, though, of course, is that armies like to have embedded journalists and photographers. Maybe I can ask Andrew about that phenomenon. You've probably seen it. Not the Australian Army, not in Afghanistan anyway. I think there were, there's been a lot of. I know Chris Masters wrote a very um, damning piece about the level of access that journalists are allowed in, in Afghanistan. I think they, you know, they they let you see what they want you to see. It's not like Vietnam, which has got this incredible archive of what really happened, whereas it's a lot more staged in, in, in modern days. You know, militaries have PR offices, and you know, you can go here, you can't go there. You got, you know, you think that the US military, you have to show them your work before you, before it's published or before you send it to your, your publication. Here's the thing that I, like, I would say about the US, though, is there's still photographers with a critical eye mm. going and doing actually good work. I mean, it tends to be about the lives of the soldiers themselves. Mm. But having said that, it's still very good stuff. But it's very difficult to, like, there's almost nothing from, you know, the other side. Yeah. 
Well, it's almost impossible. I mean, you know, chances are you go down the side, you're not going to come back. I mean, but with the Americans, I mean, usually it's 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 they like to have a look at it. It's really about deceased people. They want to make sure that the families have been contacted. And your contract, if you go on embed with that, then you have to sign up under those conditions that you don't reveal images of deceased people until the family have been. And sometimes it's almost negotiating permission from the family as well as part of the contract. It's also technology. I was embedded with the Australian Army uh, in 2012. Yeah, the conditions that you have to abide by to go with them are quite strict. And the, U the US, for example, at Kandahar Air Force Base, you're allowed to go and shoot what you want to shoot, but you can't send an image without having an Air Force boy look at every one of your images that you're going to send and say, no, you can't send that. It's usually around technology. There's stuff on the aircraft and weapons that they don't want to show the enemy, uh, so the enemy can work out, you know, how to take them down. So, but it's force protection, as they as they put it. But it's I, not I so found much political protection. Yeah, more about well, the there's an awful lot of room. Australian force protection is a lot more enforced than American. You know, there's a lot more stringent control over where you can go and what you can do. Yeah, and on the Australian trip, um, everything was we we had to schedule our, our time over there. We had to tell them what we wanted to do, where we wanted to achieve, and they catered for most of that. <laughs> but yeah, it was pretty. It was controlled, but in in the other side, I did have freedom to go amongst the troops and, and shoot what I wanted to shoot. And uh, and I took a relaxed uh, feel towards it. I didn't get too aggressive with them in the Cameroon. And they were they, a lot of them gave me great access to what they did and very relaxed scenarios where usually instead of you seeing, seeing them traditionally with a gun and firing an enemy, what do they actually do over there when they're not shooting people? Okay, so maybe here. Um, um, so often you're, as a photojournalist, you're dealing with people who are in a huge amount of pain and grief. Um, and sometimes photography can be seen as quite an invasive craft. Um, so how do you deal with that invasion of privacy in that situation? Okay. Do you want to start on that? Yeah, I might. Um, look, I think you know, I've always believed you should be a human being first or a humanitarian at least. So you're not there to make to ruin someone's life. I mean, you know, I respect people's privacy where I can. I, mean, I think, but on the other hand, I am there to be a photographer. I'm not a doctor or an NGO. Or you know, if I think something has news value and it represents the event, then I'm going to take a photograph. But I work closely enough with people. That if I feel that they don't want me there, then I will back off unless they're doing something bad. But um, particularly like um, or if like bad Bangkok people. and yeah. such things, they are there to actually make a, a statement. Well, then you've got to be cautious that you're not actually exasperating the event. You know, that you're not your presence is making them go that little bit harder. And again, I think then you have to take a step back again. You know, so you've got to be aware of all of these things. I think that's where having that experience. In fact, you know, we had first time I saw you know iPhones on mass was that last day of the red shirts, and there were a lot of shots going out, and then people coming down from the hotels and photographing the event. They were excited about being there. They thought they were playing photojournalists or something or but as soon as a few shots started coming in, because um, you know there were rounds coming in, there were RPGs launched in that position, and they were gone. You know, um, and it was only the real professionals that stayed on, and you know some left and some stayed. And really stupid idiots. Basically, yeah. <laughs> and I took criticism for that because I think it was a Facebook picture that turned up, and I was the only one not wearing a flak jacket. And was, you know, and I took criticism for that. But I got there on the day, and I tried to source one, and I remember because it's illegal for an Australian a citizen to have body armour. I'm not allowed to own body armour. I can buy a gun, but I can't buy body armour. Here, you know, so you have to source it outside of the country. So I would have had it on the day; it would have been the smarter thing to do. But I still decided to go out there and, you know, do my job. Um, yeah, I actually find this one like I found Arche difficult and everything, but I actually find this harder day to day. Just um, with, with just going to house fires and, and you know, children have died in the back of a pool. It's like you're sent there to cover it, and it is. I've got four children of my own, and, and I've found increasingly it's really, really hard. And whereas Back, you know, a lot of it's experience. Back when I was young and dumb, mm. 
Uh, I would have blasted away without any thought of the people I was photographing. And, and these days, I do what I would have abhorred back then. I would have co up and uh, unless the event is happening right in front of me, I'll go up and say, look, oh, I'm a photographer from this morning, Harold. Do you mind if I talk for a while and can I take a few photographs? Uh, and stuff like that. And um, if they say no, uh, I, I, I'll think, uh, am I actually going to do any good here harassing these people? And I'll happily walk away. It depends. It depends on the importance of the story. You know, often those pictures are just going to be portrait anyway. And it's like, how much value is it? it it's there's a lot of this stuff goes on in the, the heads of the photographers, and also, especially if you've got a good picture, they're going to go, yeah, no, it's cool, mate. Um, we understand. Things have changed since the really. Uh, things were, I think, were actually a lot more aggressive actually in the past. With amongst the photographers, the professionals, there's actually a far greater awareness of people's privacy when they are intruding or not. It's all the rest of you characters that are troublemakers. <laughs> I think it's also the mark of a, an excellent photographer, photojournalist, someone that has that sensitivity. I think you can see it in a good picture that kind of wrestles with, with those sort of issues. And I think, it, as Nick said, it also comes with experience. I, you know, I've noticed in working in Afghanistan seeing some of the less experienced local photographers who perhaps don't have the, the training and the, the knowledge that, that we've been blessed with by you know, having access to internet 24 hours a day and, and so on. Um, where, you know, it, can, it can be quite confronting watching these young guys go in and, and um, blasting away and really not being sensitive to the to the uh, scenario. And, and exactly, like, what are, are they even achieving? Mm. I mean, there were some terrible photographs taken by a few Indonesian photographers in the mm. tsunami that were just like, what the hell is the purpose behind mm. that image? Like, what, what exactly message are you trying to convey? Mm. Well, I remember there were photographers posing in front of bodies and having photographs taken of themselves. Yeah. I mean, that's just... But you can't sit in judgment. I don't know where they've come from or what they've been through or... You know, you just wouldn't do that yourself. And I, I think we just come from a different society and different sort of values. And I think that's changing there too as they could get more educated. And they were hungry. These young photographers, I, I remember in 98, they were asking us what was happening in their own country because under Sahara it was a much more closed environment. And they wanted to learn what it was like to be us. Um, and they've come a long way. Yeah, it's, ex it's experience. It's just experience, knowledge, and craft, and, and sharing of information. Okay, I'm going to ask. Craig, one last question, which is related to the privacy issue. Facebook. You know, there's a terrible tendency now when something bad happens, we don't all dive onto Facebook and go and research like mad to try and grab images. Are there any boundaries about what you can take from Facebook, do you think? People put stuff up there, is it fair game? I think you shouldn't put anything on the internet that you don't want to be taken away because anything you publish is basically anyone's. Luckily, as photographers, we don't go to Facebook and take photos. That's a journalist's job. Thank you. And, <laughs> and some of our journalists have, have been very good at uh, tapping into that sort of source for a photo. It's certainly become a source of, of everyone out there. You know, that any victim, there's usually a photo of them out somewhere. And Facebook, even if you're not friends with them, chances are someone you're friends with are friends with them. And those photos are stolen or taken or used. I don't, I don't know. Okay, a hard question to end with. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody, and we're now going to break and, I think, 